0: all right let's convene
1: welcome 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 um i know i think i announced many of you don't know i said i was going to israel and then i didn't go to israel oh you didn't go no my brother who i was going to visit wound up going out of the country so and then my sister-in-law said well i think i may just do it all right all right all right I'll go again another time. It was not a big deal. So uh, I just wanted you to know. However, you can talk to Daisy and uh, Bill about the Galapagos. They, because I know (laughs) them. Wonderful. So um, I want to start with a chant. Um, Here at the synagogue, there's a prayer for peace at the end of the, what's known as the Amida, or the Great Prayer. And um, the, words, the, word, the prayer for peace begins, Sim Shalom Tova Ubracha. I'll teach that to you, which means grant peace, goodness, and blessing. And something that, uh, one of the beautiful ways that cultures transmit in between each other is with melodies. Um, and basically, wherever Jews have lived, they've adopted melodies from the host culture that they lived in. So if you hear, if you hear um, uh, North African Jewish music, it sounds like other North African music. And if you hear German Jewish music, it sounds like German music. And there are also more ancient threads of cantillation and melody that date back to 1,500 years. But much of the melodies wind up absorbing the the sounds of the culture they're in. So we're doing that all the time. And when you say, what's a Jewish music, it's a very um, hard question to answer, actually. Uh, So uh, we sing Sim Shalom Tova Vracha to the tune of Dona Nobis Pachem, which is the Latin round, give us peace. And the Hebrew means Sim Shalom, give us peace, Tova Goodness, uvracha, blessing. So let's sing it in Hebrew and in Latin. I'll start in in Latin. Dona nobis
2: pacem, pacem.
1: Dona nobis chem. And in English, in, in Hebrew, it sounds like this.
2: Shalom
1: shalom Tova And it's a three-part, so I'll do all three parts now. And if you know the parts, you sing them. If not, you just keep singing the first part, or whatever you... Or sing another part. <laughs> Shalom <speaking in Hebrew> to
3: a few moments in this delicious silence. Knowing that the source of peace, that we would ask to grant us peace, is never separate from us. That source is already deep within each of us.
1: This is the final of these four classes that we're doing. So we'll make sure to leave some time at the end so that people can, we can conclude together. It's not an ending, permanent ending. We'll uh, figure out what the next, what the next uh, iteration or incarnation of this will be. We don't know yet. I am, there were flyers that Lauren was giving you. Uh, my next class series, which I scheduled in the fall, so I didn't want to change it, uh, begins next week. We're going to be traveling through the spring Jewish holidays. Uh, And uh, I'll talk more about it later. But today's class, where I'm going to be talking about the Jewish liturgical year, as we talked about the Christian liturgical year last uh, week, will actually lead directly into what we're going to be covering over the next number of weeks uh, here in the class. But before we do that, the question has come up a number of times um, about the origin of monasticism in Christianity, whereas there is no monastic tradition in Judaism. So Matthew suggested that he talk about that a little bit first, because
3: that's a question that's come up with several times. Uh, and I haven't planned anything to uh, intentionally here, but I thought we could. Uh, field questions about monasticism as Jonathan said it's from the very beginning it's been a way of life within the Christian tradition and it hasn't really been an option in the Jewish tradition except perhaps um, a few attempts maybe in the first century or before there was the Essene movement which in some ways was a kind of separatist Jewish movement that went out into the deserts um, often lived celibate life Uh, but also had people connected to them who were back in the cities. So there were movements similar to what we see develop as Christian monasticism, but it pretty much died out in Judaism or never took hold. Would you say why? Yes. Uh, Well, it's hard to
1: say why exactly. Um, (coughs) Philo, who was a first-century Jewish philosopher who spoke Greek and lived in Alexandria, therefore he wasn't D- deeply connected to the rabbinic tradition, uh, talks about uh, uh, um, Hermetic Jewish traditions where they would go out into the desert and uh, imitate Moses, right? Who went out, or who went out into the desert uh, to meet God. Uh, but that tradition of Philo's uh, and the <coughs> Jewish community of Alexandria, and that particular flavor of Judaism that was we know about from the first, second century because of the writings of Philo um, ended. We lose track of it. We don't know when it, when it merged with Greek society or when it did. We just don't know. Um, uh, in the rabbinic tradition, because it said the first commandment to the human beings in Genesis, is be fruitful and multiply. In other words, that's the first commandment in the entire Bible. That was always used as a um, rationale for the reason that the biggest mitzvah is, the biggest commandment is to, to get hitched and make babies, right? So that has always been a supreme Jewish value. And that may be the reason there are ascetic trends in Judaism that come up regularly throughout the Middle Ages and into the late Middle Ages of men who went through extreme self, um, um, what's the word? Deprivation. Deprivation, you know, um, um, or even in the Middle Ages, Jews who copied, uh, not flagellation, but other forms of severe penitence and restriction on when and how they could have sexual contact, and all oh, right, to an extreme, but it never led away from the fundamental Jewish value of being married uh, and uh, of being fruitful and multiplying. So I don't, I don't have an exact explanation, but that is essentially the way the way it uh, the way the chips fell.
3: It, it,
4: if that is indeed the first commandment that were given, then how did Christianity decide that the path to a mono, monastic kind of living would be okay?
3: So, in, in Christianity, the conversation it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, as I said, there were schools of Judaism in the first century when Christianity was starting to emerge that were. Um, practicing celibacy and living a lifestyle that would have looked monastic. So it was kind of in the cultural conversation at the time. Um, the Essenes, it, that, it seems that they were perhaps a kind of apocalyptic school of thought. They thought you know, the, the world was corrupt, um, there was gonna be some kind of final clash, final battle, apocalyptic event any day now, and they were sort of preparing for that and um, living really strict purity codes. Strict um, purity codes, mm-hmm. but not celibate codes. not celibate codes. The
1: Essenes married. Mm-hmm. Um, they followed the, as far as I know. Uh, so it was not a celibate tradition, but a very strict and ascetic uh, tradition.
3: I didn't know that. I did think that some of the Essenes were celibate. Not so that's, that I'm aware that's, of. No. That's a learning point for me. Um, so St. Paul, I, I was just reading the other day, one of the texts assigned in the daily prayers was from a letter of Saint Paul to the church in Corinth, and he's responding to a letter he's received from these early Christians. So he's writing probably in the fifties here. Um, not the nineteen fifties, right?
4: <laughs> Just
3: the fifties, 50s, fifties. 50s um,
4: original fifties, right? So, <laughs> not the do
3: not the do up fifties, right? So he says. Uh, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and now here's embedded in his letter a quotation from the letter he received. It is well for a man not to touch a woman. This is what they've asked him about. And then he responds, but because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has a particular gift from God one having one kind and another a different kind. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So So Paul himself apparently was celibate. Paul Paul himself uh, was celibate. There's speculation that he could have been a widower, um, but there's no clear evidence. But he himself was celibate, practiced celibacy. um, And you see there that he doesn't necessarily say, it's the best way, it's the only way. And he actually says, It's important to marry, this is a part of our tradition, but if you're given the gift, he says it's a gift. If you're given the gift of celibacy, um, then it's a good way of life. If you're not, that's a good way of life. So this sort of developed in the early church the idea that some people uh, are given the gift of celibacy um, that isn't given to all, and it's not a higher or better gift, but a different one, a different way of life and to those who might be called to an unmarried life, it opens up new possibilities. Um, So monastic communities formed where people could devote themselves more deeply to a life of prayer, could kind of give themselves solely over to the God quest and not be saddled with the responsibilities of family life. Um, So they sort of emerge as two separate tracks. And as the church kind of goes rolling down through the ages, you start to get a sense at times that the celibate path is the higher path, um, but that's never actually been really the formal, official teaching. It just kind of starts feeling that way. Um, So, the way the early Christians embodied the church was as an organism, the body of Christ, and within an organism, all the parts of the body, all the gifts within the body are, are all necessary and of equal importance and value. So monastic communities uphold one way of life, um, that's a witness to the rest of the body, while as married people uphold another way of life, that's a witness to the other side. Uh, but and, problem?
1: Yes, the priests who
3: are celibate are At this also point, the wh- priests. Aren't celibate? Oh, you're talking about yeah, earlier in the yeah. church, sure, right. right? Okay, right. good. Celibacy Keep going. Uh, a good thousand years into the life of the church um, before celibacy becomes normative for clergy. Um, And and that does have to do with the rise of monasticism, actually. Um, So I'll say a word about that in a minute. Sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. Um, So they're seen as two different vocations of equal value, different ways of life, different avenues into God. Uh, Pretty much generally understood that most people are going to be called into married life and that celibacy is a sort of minority gift given to some. Um, Often monasteries sort of uphold a witness to contemplative living that can be a gift and a resource for married people. So monasteries often became places of retreat for those who needed a, a bit of refuge from the world. And so they could serve each other and often the monasteries would be supported by the people who are living more secular lives in the world, so they they fed each other, um, mutually. Um, In the early church, and this goes back to our topic last last, or two weeks ago, about the Christian liturgical year, we looked at the cycle of the year. The other cycle is the daily and weekly cycle of prayer. The earliest Christians followed a daily rhythm of, usually at, at the least, morning and evening prayer. And you see it in the Christian scriptures. There'll be a reference to then the disciples went up to the temple for it was the hour of prayer. It was the third hour. It was the ninth hour. And so there's a clear sense that they were stopping at set times to offer Jewish prayer. Uh, this just carried right over into the early Christian movement. Um, as people started moving out into the desert. Christians started kind of reacting to the excesses of the Roman Empire, and they started moving out into the desert where they felt they could live a fuller, more authentic Christian life. And they started the first desert monastic communities. And they kept that rhythm of prayer enacted. So they were still living rhythm of prayer, and they often upped it, not just the two or three times, but there's a line from Uh, the psalmist that says, seven times a day do I praise you. And so they upped it to seven or even eight times a day they were coming together for congregational prayer. At the same time, the Christians out in the world were living a rhythm of prayer two or three times daily. Eventually, the monastics started then coming back into the cities, Christianity's legalized, it's growing, they moved back in and the way they had developed monastic prayer Actually, then moves into the sort of secular life of the church. And <clears throat> eventually, the times of prayer get so elaborate that lay people almost stop offering them. It's too much. It's not coming together a couple of times, it's seven or eight times, and wake up in the night. And no. suddenly, the rhythm of prayer becomes um, sort of a specialized practice that clergy and monastics offer. And lay people almost drop out of it. Um, at the same time, monastics now start being given uh places of authority within the life of the church. Often monastics will be elected as bishops. And it actually becomes common practice that a bishop is actually drawn from a monastery. So then the higher ups in the organization are now celibate. So the church got specialized, as it were. Right. So then celibacy starts becoming normative for clergy as well. And eventually there's just a turnover and the celibacy that was once reserved for the monastics infuses the whole structure. And all the clergy then uh, are decreed, it's decreed that they should all be celibate. Um, So celibacy becomes tied into clergy, and then the rhythm of daily prayer becomes specialized for monastics and clergy. And what about nuns? Uh, So there are women's communities at the same time emerging. Um, Women at this time aren't given priestly functions, but women often do lead their own communities as an abbess, just like an abbot would lead a men's community, and often they were really respected as um, wisdom teachers, and there are lots of stories of people going out to the desert amas, mothers, and the desert abbas, fathers, um, seeking Mm. counsel and wisdom. Um,
4: When the different monastic communities formed, was it kind of like the way different Hasidic groups formed that they followed a particular teacher or priest and had a particular world view of how to do their religion?
3: Sometimes it would form around a particular um, person. Sometimes someone would go out to the desert and they would become sort of an ascetic, a saint, who was renowned for their holiness. And then slowly a community would start mm-hmm. gathering around them. Um, And sometimes it's just people who together went out and started a shared life uh, in in that way.
4: Was there a template for their living?
3: So uh, what develops are rules of life for each community, a rule uh, from the Latin word regula, so it's a regulating principle, it's not rules, like do this, don't do that, but uh, a regula, a rule that shapes and governs the life of the people in community together. and so that's where you get something like the rule of St. Benedict, which is a, a, a template for how to live a monastic life in community. And those are Benedictines. And those are Benedictines. And so, and so often you get... Of, what uh, are
5: some examples of those
3: rules? Well, they're not rule. It's uh, a uh, It's a rule. Yes, plural they're rules, but, but a singular one is a rule for but a whole community. The um, you know, there would be guidelines for times of prayer, um regulating meals, times of silence, um, you know, how to um practices like custody of the eyes, which was a monastic practice that, you know, when you're in silence, you if you're passing through the hall of the monastery, you practice custody of the eyes. You sort of look downward. So you're not looking people in the eyes because then they might feel pressured to smile at you and then if they don't smile you might wonder, why didn't they smile at me? You know, so there were all these guidelines for sort of Cultivating humility, clarity of focus, uh, Godward intention. So, anyone
1: who's familiar with Buddhist uh, uh, retreat practices, which are very can be very regulated, for the similar purposes of staying focused on have keep of training your attention to be focused in a certain way.
3: Mm-hmm. Is that a fair analogy? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, any monastic community, the practices are designed to focus your intention on, um, on the ultimate goal, on the absolute, on, uh, in Jewish or Christian language, the divine. Um, Buddhism, right. you wouldn't use God language, um, necessarily, um, but the ultimate, um, mm-hmm. that it's a community that's gathered and their intention is the ultimate meaning. Mm-hmm. And the ashrams too. Uh, a couple of comments. Of,
1: did you want to say something, uh, Diane?
4: Years ago, I went to hear Bruce Chilton, Is it from? My, yeah. that your church, actually? And what I what I think I remember him saying is that it wasn't a, so much a commandment to be celibate, but it was a commandment to it was a vow of poverty. And because marriage is so much, or was so much, an mm-hmm. economic institution
3: that's why they didn't marry mm. well you can certainly see that as part of the reason why the vows are actually separate there's the vow of chastity and the vow of poverty um, so they're they're interrelated but to form a community of people who are focusing their life on prayer um, and solitude you know when you're having to support families and you've got kids running around and you know like that you can't maintain that that life with that intention. Um, so certainly, it, it, it is, when you read the text, it's often not so much about what you're giving up as it is about what you're focusing on, you know? The focus isn't, I'm giving up sex, the focus is, I'm fo- give, I'm getting this. Mm-hmm. Paul had yeah. a good idea, they should have
4: stuck with that.
6: So, um, One of the things that really struck me in the fall series of sessions, and it was uh, a week you weren't here, Mm -hmm. and Suzanne was talking, Mm -hmm. and this question about monasticism came up, And, and what she said really struck me, and it's different from, it's not like in opposition to what you say, it's just a different track, and what she had said and I wrote it down October twenty-second, because so, <laughs> it really struck me, was that once Christianity became the official religion, mm-hmm. then martyrdom, which had been an early focus, yes. was gone. And it was turned into uh, monasticism.
1: You know, the ultimate sacrifice, really giving, marrying God, giving yeah. yourself over entirely to God. Making yourself a sacrifice to God, as it were? I that's guess. what I'm hearing. I mean, what yeah,
6: that's it was just something she said. We, went, we weren't talking about that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it was just something, but I wrote it down because it really struck me.
3: That could certainly be a strand of it. Um, you have uh, people choosing celibate life from the earliest days of the church before it's ever linked with empire. So it doesn't emerge then, but it. In many ways, um, some of the some of the early Christians, when they merged with when Christianity merged with empire, they felt like Christianity then lost its its um its vigor, its focus, its intensity because you know it wasn't the small focused minority. Now it's, it it comes kind of lax because you're the religion of the empire, and so they did go out into the desert to live a more focused, um, more intentional kind of life. So you, I could see that the martyrdom falls away, and you still want that intensity.
6: Yeah, you're not getting martyred anymore. Right, right. That's that total that
3: total giving yeah, of it's a, a yourself.
6: sacrifice. Well, yeah. It's a sacrifice. not a focus but has a you know, has this whole religious quality martyrdom. hmm And it's no longer happening, then you have to right. you don't have to, but this is one way of evolving it into something that works while you're in power.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think that would be a bit of a simplification to think it's people who really would like to have gotten killed for their faith and they can't anymore, no, so they I decide to I become celibate. That. I don't but, think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, um, I... Hold on. Carol and then Barbara and... I, that's Helen. But this but this
5: is maybe a multi-part question or maybe your original answer will... I'm feeling very cynical right now. And maybe coming up against one of my unthought-out prejudices, so, so I want to put that out before I say this because I'm very nervous about saying. This. Um, first of all, what is what is the word chastity from the Greek? Like what? Where does it come from, and what does
3: it? I'm mean? sure it's from the Greek. I don't know what the Greek word would be, but chastity has been interpreted over the centuries as meaning um, as applying both to um, celibates and non-celibates in, in, in a sense that it refers to sort of responsible sexuality um, that that it's either sexuality lived within um, the bounds of a married relationship or sexuality given over wholly to god in a celibate vocation um, so chastity sometimes is used as a synonym for celibacy but it also can be used in a wider sense uh, within the tradition
5: where, where <coughs> I'm just going to say it so I can get rid of it, because I don't want to be stuck with this thought. Um, but I was very struck by St. Paul saying what it means is not to touch a woman.
3: Oh, no, that was the question. They wrote to him and asked about, uh, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. Right. But, and then he and responds he says, and says, no, it's actually better to have a partner and have regular sex than to...
5: Than to go crazy, right? <laughs> but but he also says, I wish everybody could be like me, right? Um, and and I know they're not, so it's okay. They can be like that, right? But you can you so can hear
3: a little bit of the superiority, right? Yeah. Thinking there. I wish but, all were as myself, but each has a particular gift from God. One having one kind, and another a different kind. So you what, didn't get the gift I have.
5: But what I'm hearing, and right. like what I'm hearing, is if men didn't want to touch
3: women. Oh, right, right.
5: It's a perfect societal place, like building building a structure for a homosexual man to live a full life and be safe. And and the the stuff that comes out of it, I don't know, it's what do you do if you have you know, you're not working all day long, so pray seven times. I don't right, mean right. to be quite that cynical, but but I can't that that's that's so much in those words for me mm-hmm. because it certainly is true there had to have been homosexual men and women in the year 50s, So 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 <coughs> is there any thinking about that? Is it is, is there any writing about that? Is
3: you know, people couldn't write about sacred? those. People couldn't write about those things so openly. At the time certainly over the course of the centuries, monasteries have often been safe places for gay and lesbian people who felt they couldn't live their sexuality out in the world. Um, sometimes it's been a way to sublimate or hide from that. Um, I don't think that's the primary motivation behind the impulse towards monasticism. Uh, that it's people running away from their sexuality. And in most discernment programs, um, the you know, formation director um, within a community would be looking to see if that was the case. If this is actually someone who's trying to run away from their sexuality, Um, because you don't want those people in your community. You want people with an integrated um, whole sense of their sexuality. Um, But in the early days of the church, I'm sure they would have seen homosexuality in a very negative light, which isn't the case today. (laughs) well, and it depends on the Christian denomination you're a part of, right, right. 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 Um, Boy, that's a whole another
1: <laughs> giant, this is a giant topic which I think should pertain to this proposed idea we have of exploring the role of the feminine, <clears throat> the suppression of the feminine, and, mm-hmm. it, and the way that femininity and sexuality get demonized in traditions, and we're gonna have that's mm-hmm. on our
3: agenda for this
1: this class. We keep talking about <laughs> Barbara and then uh, Helen. I, I, yeah, oh yeah. Um, there's a book called Jews and Eros by David Beale who's a that I read a couple years ago. He's a academic, um, and uh, you know the received. Um, 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 what's the right word? The 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 received sort of conventional wisdom is that, oh, the Christians did this with sexuality, but thank God the Jews had a healthier relationship with sexuality. When you actually read an historical, a scholarly treatment of it, we Jews were not separate from these cultural environments. Uh, and uh, oh, there's all kinds of phases of relationship to, to uh, the feminine, to marriage, to sexuality, in Jewish tradition too. Uh, but the Jews never embraced celibacy as a, um, uh, as a uh, positive, mm-hmm. positive option, option, and that does differentiate Judaism from Christianity. Barbara, you want to say something?
4: Um, just also to differentiate different Christian perspectives, the
6: Eastern Orthodox never went the route of
4: celibacy as much, and also Protestantism so there's like different views of Christianity also in regards to celibacy.
3: Yeah, in the Eastern churches celibacy has always been a practice. Um, Bishops are usually, I think always are drawn from celibate clergy. Um, Clergy are allowed to marry before their ordination, but you remain in the state in which you are at your ordination to the priesthood. So if you're married, Mm -hmm. you stay married. If you're celibate, you don't get married. After you're ordained, so you need to decide beforehand. Um, that's the path they took, that's right. and then, of course, <laughs> no, that's the Eastern oh. Orthodox. Eastern Orthodoxy. and so Protestantism, Protestantism. Well, so now move is not ahead. much of a tradition of celibacy. Protestantism practically rejected the tradition of celibacy, the tradition of monasticism altogether. Clergy are pretty much always married, um, and there no there there are no monks or nuns. or celibates. Would it be fair to say? that given the
1: excesses and corruption of the monastic establishment of the Catholic Church when the Protestant Reformation happened, that they were rejecting everything, everything about it. Yeah.
3: Well, you know what had happened? Do you, was, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. There was there had been a confusion of vocations. Um, people who felt called so to kind. the vocation <laughs> of, of priesthood, but perhaps didn't have a natural gift for celibacy, had celibacy forced on them if they really desired to be in ministry in that way. Um, so the backlash from a lot of res- repressed sexuality was to just throw out celibacy altogether. Whereas ideally, you would recognize them as two valid options, two different paths, not one better or higher or lower, um, and, but they got merged. And then right. when they got ripped apart, the other half got thrown away.
1: Well, I think it's fair, I think it's fair to say that power corrupts and that in order to rise up in the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, you had to be celibate. celibate right. And so you know, I think, I think there were the, the, pro- the Protestants who protested that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, rejected it. On the other hand,
3: the Anglicans <laughs> right. retained what? Monasticism, right. In the Anglican Church, monasticism actually was abolished briefly. Um, when the Anglican Church began, King Henry did close the monasteries. Largely out of selfish mo- motivation. He wanted the property. <laughs> um, uh, then there was a revival of monastic life within the Anglican churches. And today there are Anglican monasteries that are alive and flourishing. And are the Anglicans there celibate? Well, yes, because the monastic vocation is a celibate vocation. Um, Anglican clergy, Episcopal clergy, can be male, female, gay, straight, um, married, single, celibate, not celibate. But there's a recognition that the monastic vocation is celibate. So if you choose that, you're choosing celibacy. I see. So
1: in the Anglican Church, uh, it sounds like choosing that monastic vocation does not elevate you to the heights of power.
0: No.
3: No. No. It's uh, I, no I'm asking. That's right. like yeah. It's there's like no. It wouldn't be a power move in the least to enter a monastery. Um, Interesting. It, and and we live in a church. The church today has generally speaking, very positive teachings on sexuality, and is very inclusive in regards to gay, lesbian, and transgendered members in its life. So you also wouldn't run to a monastery because you were hiding from your sexuality. You'd go because you really wanted it. And you'll see now that vocations in monastic communities are much smaller than they once were. And it's probably actually just a, a more authentic reflection of the number of authentic monastic vocations. Whereas before, people were just funneled into them through a pipeline. Um, today, people seek it out who really want it. Wow. Um, and you,
1: one other Helen, thing. You've been, yeah. Sorry, one other thing, and then we're at, and you live at a monastery.
3: Yeah, so uh, my whole priesthood, I've lived alongside monastic communities. Uh, I lived alongside the community of the Holy Spirit, an order of Episcopal nuns in Brewster. Uh, they've got an organic farm, and we prayed the daily prayers four times a day in chapel, Uh, and now my wife and I live alongside Holy Cross Monastery uh, down on Route 9W and we join them in the rhythm of prayer. Um, The other thing, the Anglican Church never lost that daily rhythm of prayer as um, being sort of enjoined on all Christians and so our prayer book tradition upholds a practice of morning and evening prayer for every member of the church, not just for clergy or monastics. Um, And so Uh, Episcopalians, uh, many of them, pray these set prayers morning and evening. Uh, You move through the psalms, you pray the psalms daily. um, And those prayers move through the week. They're related to, they sort of prepare you for Sunday and then that weekly cycle plugs into the larger annual cycle. Um, And of course all that, again, is inherited from the daily cycle of prayer within Judaism. Okay, sorry, Uh, Helen. One thing that, um, when I think
4: of the, the monasteries, the, what we know, you know, when they became very, very powerful, actually, and when they, at one period of history, were the place where culture, education, science, that was something great that grew out of this. I mean, I don't know if they saw <laughs> <laughs> the celibacy into a form of uh, of this tremendous creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, output that they had. Um, they
3: were real strongholds of learning and education, of literacy, yeah, of, um, of book making, of science. Right, absolutely. You know, yeah.
4: and, you know, that's one thing kind of left out of this discussion. I'm so glad you
1: raised it, because yes, from my, from my you know, high school history, it, was the, uh, it w- was the monastics who preserved literary culture mm-hmm. during the darkest uh, times in the Middle Ages. Is that an accurate thing? And the Muslims. <laughs> right, I was just <laughs> talking, no, oh, I, yes. and the Jews. And the I Jews, was, right. But I was just talking about yes, in mona- the Christian world.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Monasticism, uh, by and large, has been a stronghold of, of higher learning. For, you know, Thanks okay. for mentioning that. And who, who else was Please. Uh, Blaise?
5: Going back to monasticism, you mentioned Buddhism and the Buddhist monastics. Um, I've just um, been reading a book by Thomas Merton called Mystics and Zen Masters. And he has a lot of um, sort of comparisons and parallels and where they branch off and differ uh, between Christianity and God and what is um, comparable or not comparable in Zen. And he talks about how in the West, Zen has been completely like, like not The way it was. (laughs) (laughs) And so if anybody wants to really delve into that, it's a good
3: book to um, read. Thomas Merton. Mystics and Zen Zen Masters. And Merton's a great, you know, a great author to engage if you want to look at Christian monastic spirituality. He lived it very deeply for decades and he also was a Christian who engaged in a lot of inter-monastic and inter-religious dialogue at a very deep level. Right. So
5: anyway, it's good
3: to read anything by him. And there have been, for many decades, some wonderful inter-monastic dialogues between monastics of Hindu, Buddhist, Christian traditions. Right. So that's, anyway. Right. No, um, I, so thank you.
1: Uh, I think that's one of the places where we diverge big time. Right. Even though the same spiritual impulse is pursued in Judaism in its own ways, which is reflected in the most traditional world that young men go to the yeshiva and are supported to study all day. They are also supposed to get married, and they do, but that uh, often it's so that the wife can work currently and support. That's a fairly recent development. But the same impulse to devote yourself to God expresses itself in the cultures, and it, in, cultures in different ways and in, the, in both cases you know is there time to be a householder and a family person and also if you are if you, you're bitten by that bug you know some of us are born this way to just want to know God uh, how do you do it and that's, uh, this part, that's part of the spectrum of human temperaments and interests and so every culture has to find a way to accommodate. Yeah. Is it getting cold well, in here? I mean,
5: it was so warm. Well,
1: the, yeah, except that the except now it feels like there's just cold air blowing
4: and in and it's, and it's, well, so it, what, what struck me tremendously: the power of language, that, how powerful it is. That that phrase you introduce, the gift of celibacy, how that absolutely flipped in my mind a different way of being able to look at those kind of choices. And so that, that someone can
3: choose question. to to channel their desire for intimacy god you know, in a different way. And, and there is, we often, betrayed in the languaging is sometimes that sense of superiority of a higher path, um, because we talk about or giving yourself wholly to God. If you're a monastic, then you want to give yourself wholly to God, which seems to imply that you can't give yourself wholly to God in family life, which of course isn't the case. You can give yourself wholly to God in family life or in monastic life. There are two different ways of doing that. And uh, we often, non-monastics will often talk about monastics leaving the world, which is, talk to any monastic, it's not the case at all. In many ways, you're actually entering more intensely into the world, because you're living in community with several other people. It's like you're married to ten people instead of one, you know, so there are all these interpersonal dynamics, you know, you sort of throw yourself into the fire in a way. Um, And you still have to find a way to support and sustain the monastery, you know, it's it's not like an easy out from the world. Let me comment on that too, and then
1: I'll get Ruth's comment, and then we're going to go to this other subject, which is that, that's a beautiful phrase, the gift of celibacy. celibacy. Which is the same way that Jewish spiritual teachers talk about the gift of Jewish practice, right? What to our secular eyes looks burdensome, like all those rules, right? To someone who's embraced it, it feels like a gift because it's a constant opportunity to do God's will, right? And it it all depends on your point of view, Ruth.
4: Right. Of, right of a life. I also, we don't have the option
1: as Jews of living a monastic life.
4: Yeah, some thing, you know,
1: that, um, we don't get to knock on wood, we don't get to cross ourselves.
6: <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> we do get yeah,
1: we to we do. do something. I didn't know was Oh yeah, it's about the cross. <laughs> yeah. Same with cross your fingers.
4: <laughs>
1: um, so Ruth, my mother would disagree because she says poo 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 right. all the time. But the the first uh, kanenahara. Yeah, we have words we say. You got
6: prayers for everything. <laughs>
3: She
1: couldn't spit with a mask on. <laughs> so I think we Jews have ways of doing that, our, our, you know, including phrases like saying mm-hmm. kaneinahara, but, which means keep the evil eye away.
4: Kaneinahara. <laughs> but, but what does it
1: mean? It means that you want to, These are these are generally medieval, superstitious, forgive me, <laughs> practices that when you <laughs> say something good, yeah. You want to make sure the devil, you know, the demons don't hear it; else, they're going to come in and like uh, suck it out from you, right? Okay, but the first thing you said, no, Judaism does not have a monastic tradition. In fact, I've often taught every culture has its, has its flavor, and that that if you want to practice the Jewish path, it's with people. That's the Jewish path, and as I've said it over, God, where are you going to find God? In the community. Judaism is a messy path of doing it with your community. That's what it is.
3: Monasticism is a messy path of doing right. it with your community okay. too. Right, but without uh, without sex. <laughs> right.
5: So
1: there you go. We have just summed it up.
5: <laughs> either way. Either way is good.
3: But also without screaming okay. babies and children running around. And of
4: course living myself in
3: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: No, there's no avoiding it, but the idea, of the idea that somehow separating yourself from the, the, the collective uh, in order to pursue more nearness to God doesn't exist in Judaism. It just doesn't. Yeah, so Jews who have that yearning are going to have to look elsewhere if they want a path of that kind of specific... Single focused,
3: you know. I have a rabbi friend who he's he's mourned to me about this before. He says he he if he had been born in another tradition, he knows he would have been a monk. But uh-huh. he was born Jewish, and, so he the, can't. and one of the reasons I'm a happy rabbi is because I'm a total extrovert, <laughs>
1: and I want to do it with you. Right, this is where the action is for me. So, teach or their teach their own. Can, can I go on? Use a young boy. Yeah, just
4: you said
1: it. All right, well. so let's talk. <laughs> Uh let's talk about the Jewish year.
5: Sorry. <laughs> you saw that. Right,
1: right. Would you let's pass these around.
5: Since um
1: since Matthew handed out that those nice graphics last time,
2: um, <laughs> oh
0: I went
1: looking <laughs> about this internet for nice graphics of the Jewish cycle. And um, I didn't find exactly what I wanted, so I added some things. But first, turn over the page, because there were so many great graphics. So look on the lower left. That's Jewish time. (laughs) I love that. Isn't that great? and then on the lower right there was this other beautiful graphic of look at just take a look at that yeah. it's like that one of the Christian year that right
3: came out as a spiral. Right. Yeah. what
1: is time anyway is it cyclical or is it, uh, Is it uh, you know so I just love that I want that watch I, I want both these um, and uh, this uh, and then this graphic on top we're actually gonna look at in a couple of minutes because, uh, but so, you, so let me just, uh, by way of introduction, turn the page back over again. Okay, so before we, some, some framing comments, and again, I'm not gonna complete this subject. In fact, we're gonna be talking about it a lot over the next few weeks. Um, so the Jewish year and the Jewish way of marking time begins with the seasons and the moon and agriculture. That is the origin of how Jews count time. Uh, The Jewish calendar, as laid out in the Bible, is an agricultural calendar to which have been overlaid historical rememberings. Does that make sense, everybody? So that one of the interesting things is that Christianity as it then Takes that uh, rhythm of time and attaches it to the spiritual life of uh, Jesus, and living that life is then another layer on what superimposed on what was originally an agricultural calendar, and now has very little relate. The Christian calendar has 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 relatively little relationship to the agricultural cycle. Right, is that a fair thing to say? Mm-hmm.
3: With the exception of springtime, right. rebirth. Right, the, the two sort of big ones get mapped, you know, the, the, the Christmas celebration, the sort of coming of the light, sort of right. matches um, the days beginning to lengthen in the winter and then Easter sort of ties into springtime, but right. it's, it's loose. It's loose
1: and it's also global, right? It, you can go global with that, pretty much, unless you're in the southern hemisphere. Right, okay. and then it and, yeah. flips. And so, Um, But that's the problem with the Jews in the... When I was in New Zealand last year at this time... Oh, it's a trip. Um, Passover is in the autumn in New Zealand. So they do not talk about the agricultural layer. It's, it's, It's become detached from that. Living in the Northern Hemisphere, we're close enough in latitude, it's not exactly the same. If you're living in California, it's exactly the same mm-hmm. because it's a Mediterranean climate with a six-month winter rainy season and a very hot, dry summer. And you know, actually, so if you don't want to go to Israel, go to California. You can, yeah, you can live by the Jewish calendar. So, um, anyhow, so the 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 Bible is clear that these that the festivals of the Jewish year both have agricultural and historical, spiritual significance. They're already mapped out for us. And we're still working from that template, which for me is a, a beautiful rhythm of time. So, the, one of the first things to look at on this, uh, on, on this side is the axis that goes between Passover and Sukkot. Can you find that from the 15th? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The 15th of Nisan to the 15th of Tishrei. It absolutely bisects or dissects the year. And those are, that is how, that is the template of the Jewish year. These are lunar months. The 15th of every month means the full moon. The festival of Sukkot, which lasts for eight days, well, let's say seven for now, uh, falls on the um, 15th, the full moon of the month of Tishrei, and Passover falls on the full moon and then goes for seven days of the month of Nisan. And, so,
4: and these names are, are Hebrew names. Ah, mm-hmm. great.
1: Okay, so the names of the Hebrew months. The names of the Hebrew months, interestingly, are the Babylonian calendar. Mm. Turn the page over. And this one shows you, look at the month of Nisan. What's its other little name there? Aviv. Aviv, which is the Hebrew word for spring. And ER, its Hebrew name is Zeb which means, uh, uh, means radiance or light. Um, so in the older strata of the Bible, months have these names.
3: So did this come out of the Babylonian exile? After the
1: Babylonian exile, the Jews adopted the calendar months of the Babylonians, the, which were the empire
0: mm-hmm.
1: of that time. And we adopted names that are Babylonian names. The one that'll be most telling is Tammuz. You, you see the month Tammuz over on the right. It's a summer summer month. Mm-hmm. That uh, Damuzi or Tammuz was the chief god of the pantheon in Babylonia.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, just like our months now, our our um, Roman gods and mm-hmm. our days of the week. And our days of the week. Yeah. So, the, for the because we've inherited that calendar. The Jews in exile in Babylonia adopted the names of the Babylonian months, so these are actually names that have become Hebrew words because they've been our months for 2,500 no years. Names
4: in the Torah of the months. Uh,
1: the only months that get named in the Torah are the ones where you see little uh, names in parentheses here. We know Etanim, Bul. Those are names we see in pre-Babylonian Hebrew texts. Does that make sense, everybody? Mm-hmm. Those names get superseded, but the word for spring is still Aviv, right? Tel Aviv means the hill of spring. So um, uh, so the Hebrew word for the season of spring is still Aviv, but uh, the uh, month is Nisan since 2,500 years now. So that was a good question. These are Babylonian names that become the months of the Hebrew calendar. So, um, here, let's turn it over again. Nisan, Nisan is the month of spring. The full moon of Nisan is the spring full moon. Because this is not strictly a solar calendar we don't celebrate spring on March 21st in the Jewish calendar we celebrate it on the full moon of Nisan which comes closest to the spring equinox right? so this is the lunar equinox moon spring. and in the fall Sukkot which is the harvest holiday is the harvest moon It's the fall equinox full moon so because the full moon doesn't follow the same cycle as the solar calendar, uh, it, I guess I'm starting from the beginning, and forgive me if this is stuff that, uh, that uh, you've heard a million times. But I think I need to start. I think it's always good to start over. The lunar, the solar year is 365 and a quarter days, which is why we had a leap year mm-hmm. this year. Every four years, it's 365 and a quarter. Four quarters makes one, so we add February 29th, and we stay on the solar cycle, more or less. You know, we're a few milliseconds off for something every year. The lunar year is 354 days. In other words, it 12 moons is 354 days. Mm-hmm. So um, that means that the lunar year is 11 days shorter than the solar year. That means that Passover this year is going to fall late this year. It's going to fall on April 22nd. Next year, it's going to fall on April 11th. The next year, it'll be March 31st. If the Jewish calendar didn't correct for the disparity between the lunar year and the solar year, the next year it would be March 19th. The next year Passover would be March 8th. The next year Passover <laughs> would be February 27th. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So every, so the, the folks who spend all their time watching the skies, they, they did not have 57 channels to watch, right, uh, and there wasn't a lot of light in the evening. So they knew their skies and they figured this out they add, they add every night, out of every 19 years in the Jewish calendar, there are seven leap years when an extra month is added. Anybody else mute their phone? Just one sec. <coughs> uh, I, that distracted me, sorry. sorry. Um, so we are currently right now at the end of in a leap year and in a leap month Michael the
0: 19 year cycle is called the Saros cycle that's the eclipse cycle and it goes back beginning after
1: 19 years that's right the lunar eclipse cycle lunar eclipse cycle right the the next time Jewish holidays will be on the date they're on is 19 years from now because the cycle re- begins again, so, so 19 years there are seven, leaf seven leap years, and that is what makes it work. <laughs> and so, in those years, there are 13 months, and the uh, extra month is added right now, because even though always, um, let's see, uh, look on. Uh, you see you see on this on this side where it says down here insert Adar Sheni here. Oh, that's it. That's <laughs> that means the month of Adar happens twice. Mm. And that pushes all the moons forward so that we stay aligned with though oscillating back and forth on the solar seasons. Does that make sense everybody? Mm-hmm. Michael
0: one is um, when we add the extra, extra adar, the holidays which are not dar can move to the second of those. Right. This diagram's a little misleading. I know. And, and one other comment, too. That process of a of shorter of the movement of the, of the months previous each year, that's what accounts for the Muslim calendar.
1: I was getting there, yeah. Getting there. Yes, so the Muslims went, the Muslims detached. The Muslims follow a lunar calendar. Same as the Jewish calendar. They follow a lunar, not a solar calendar. But their religion detaches it from the solar cycle. So that every year, the Muslim holidays are 11 days earlier than they were the year before. Which means that, the, when is Ramadan falling right now? Do you know? I don't remember. I don't remember. Summer.
5: But when we went yeah. when we were in Israel for my daughter's bat mitzvah. A yeah, the last ago, couple of years it's a while been ago it was it was around Christmas time and that's when Ramadan So was. this is
1: very different. Ramadan, which is their month of fasting is 11 days earlier every year. So, in the course of about 30 33 32 years it makes a full circuit around the year. It is not connected to the seasons in any way it's only connected to the moon so Muslims really hate it when Ramadan's in the summer because you know you have to fast while the sun is up so they have to to eat at four in the morning and then they can't eat again till nine at night but when Ramadan's in the winter those are the much easier (laughs) Ramadan years uh because you can because you the daylight hours are fewer
3: in any event um and if you miss fast days, you're supposed to make them up, but you can make them up any time of the year, so you I didn't can know hold that. your days until right. winter. <laughs> right.
6: that. Yeah. Michael.
3: But the Christian calendar isn't purely solar because Easter is, is Right, I'm going ex- to
1: explain yeah. that but what's, But you're treating it in some also metaphorical way.
0: Very much so, yeah.
1: Uh, how so? So did you follow that so Muslims follow that lunar year, Christians the sun, Jews a hybrid. Well first of all the Muslims
0: put um, the, Arab, the, the symbol is, those, is the moon
1: The crescent. The
0: stars. And of course the sun is
1: Oh, the sun, S-U-N, Jesus. is S-O-N, okay.
0: And the Jewish calendar, because of it's uh, clinging to the agricultural roots, demands the necessity for correcting. I'll repeat it, Paul. But I think it has very wide cultural repercussions, which this isn't an right
1: occasion to go into. Right, that would be a fun exploration of how our calendars, uh, uh, how our calendars affect our cultures. Um now, uh, in the Christian calendar, as uh, Matthew just said, there is only one holiday that is still connected to the moon, and that's Easter. So Easter is the only artifact in the Christian calendar that still is remembers the Jewish its Jewish origins. Does that make sense, everybody? And retains it. Um, Easter is always
3: the fourth. Sunday. What? Easter Day is always the Sunday after the full moon that occurs on or after the spring equinox on March twenty-first. Right. Okay. So Easter is always on the Sunday after the full moon, right after the March equinox. So it can never Easter can never be earlier than March twenty-second. It can never be later than April twenty-fifth. Um. But it's never on.
1: Of, it's not December 25th. It's it's different. It because it's a lunar-based holiday. This reflects its connection to Passover. Right. Easter is Passover, right? It's uh, that's they're 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 just hand in glove in in their relationship to each other. However, th- and usually Easter is on the Sunday during Passover. That's what usually happens because Passover falls on the full moon of the near the solar uh, the spring equinox and Easter was set to fall on that Sunday so that Easter was always celebrated during Passover except during leap years they can get separated for a year because Passover can get pushed so far uh, or uh, that and occasionally fall before the spring equinox. That, in those years, Easter, which this year falls on March twenty third, second, no, 27th, 27th. Mm, seventh. Early. It's early. Uh, it uh twenty four, seventh, Twenty seven.
3: 27. 27, 27.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Passover this year falls on April twenty second. That's because we're in the midst of a Jewish oh, leap do. year. Next year
3: they will they'll coincide again. <laughs> And then all the Christian holidays after Easter end up being lunar, too, because they're, they're measured so many days after Easter. So Pentecost, uh, Ascension, Pentecost, all those holidays shift forward in relation to Easter. Which follow the Jewish template, also, which we'll,
1: which we'll explore. But I just wanted to explain that about Easter. Um, it's so much the Christian take on the Passover story, right? The lamb we sacrifice to save us, right? Yeah, that becomes Jesus, as opposed to the lamb we sacrificed and put the blood over a doorpost right. so that the angel of death would pass over us. And so it's pretty straight, straightforward. And we remember that on the Seder plate with what? A roasted shank bone of a lamb, right? That's how close, How we're getting, it's so close, right? We're remembering the sacrifice that uh, we were told to make, so that we would not be slaughtered by the angel of death, we would be saved. How it's not such a stretch to turn that into eternal life, right? I, I see them as very, very, very closely related. So, okay. So now, yeah. Jonathan, I just have a quick question. Oh sure. Um,
0: is
4: this common knowledge among everyone
3: in the Muslim? Is
0: instance,
1: what? does a kid have a birthday and know when his next birthday is? Oh, I have no idea. You know, because look at the Jewish world. We live in two calendars. That's even true in Israel, where the Jewish calendar is much more dominant because they have to live in the world, right? We live in a global community. So do you celebrate your birthday on your Jewish birthday or on your Gregorian day? I have no idea what Muslims do about that.
3: And I I've known communities that will actually celebrate the solar birthday of the Prophet Muhammad and the lunar birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. Really? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, so some so maybe they do the same with, you know, their birthdays. On the other hand,
1: maybe Muslims, you know, birthdays is a very European Christian tradition. Like my grandparents never celebrated their birthdays. That was considered to bring the evil eye, right? And <laughs> it was a it was a custom, right? It was a Christian custom, but my wife's uh, uh, Viennese assimilated Jewish family birthdays was like, you know, everything because they had completely adopted the European um, Christian uh, thing. This birthday thing is is very much European and very recent. Um, so I don't know how much. Ma- mm-hmm. I don't know if people celebrate birthdays all over the world. I don't. I bet they don't, um, except to the degree that Western
3: uh, practice customs have been exported globally. Ellen just pointed out that Christians used to, and some still do, at the monastery we still do it, you would celebrate your name day, which was the name of the saint that you were given, you know, taken after. So if, if your name was Stephen on St. Stephen's feast day, you would celebrate your name day, which is As opposed than, to yeah. your birthday. Right. In fact, I would go so far as to say
1: birthdays are a, a reflection of modernity, in that the idea of the individual being so special yeah. unique and new mm-hmm. right. and you know we have to celebrate you yeah. it's like it, it's a very modern idea. Yeah. Um, and I don't know where and else to, how how widely it's practiced around the world. I don't know. Betty well, I, I don't know how to figure when somebody dies a dar two. Uh. When is the <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. If someone dies or is born during a leap year Then that date shifts over to the single Adar in the years that it isn't a leap year. So you just use the same day in Adar 1. That's right, use the same day in Adar 1. And Adar 1, all the holidays in Adar 1, Purim in particular, get deferred to Adar 2. And so that's why Purim is happening this year on March 23rd. Yeah. Purim is on March 23rd, and Easter is on March 27th this year. Purim, if you look on your little, uh, your, your your little uh, chart here, that this one, Purim is on the full moon of Adar, which is exactly one month before Passover. Purim is always on the full moon before Passover's full moon. In fact. Almost all the Jewish festivals happen on full moons. Uh, it, we'll talk about it. Take a look. Sukkot happens on the 15th of Tishrei. That's a full moon. Chanukkah's on the 25th of Kislev, we'll talk about that. Tu B'Shvat, which is the essentially the Jewish Arbor Day, falls on the 15th, the full moon of Shvat. Um, Purim falls on the 14th of Adar, the full moon in Adar, and Nisan, uh, and Passover falls on the 14th, 15th of Nisan, that's a full moon, and then if you go all the way around to Av, and you see there's the 15th of Av, which is called the New Year for Sacrifices on this chart, is a full moon. So, um, it's pretty obvious to me why festivals would be put on full moons.
0: August. Light, light, Light. 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 (laughs) Uh,
1: it's just about, it's light, not only, I mean, there's no, when there's no artificial lighting, and all you've got are fires and torches, the full moon is the perfect time for a festival, Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, especially, especially in places where there's, where the skies are clear, and uh, um, the, the humidity is low, I mean, it's like, vivid, yes, Bob,
0: I'm having difficulty understand I understand 19 years ah but I don't understand the months we have 12 lunar months or we have we have 12 13, lunar months and then
1: and then every 3 years or so a 13th is added so, every 19 years no or? seven times in the course of 19 years the
3: simplest way to understand it is
0: <laughs> The simplest way
3: to understand it is get a Jewish calendar printed in advance and not think about it. And the simplest way to understand it is that approximately
1: every 3 years there's a Jewish leap year. Okay. Okay, three approximately years. every 3 years there's a, a Jewish leap year. Leap year. And We're in the some, midst of it and right that's now. make
3: up for the difference between the lunar and solar That's right. Cycle. So you add those 29 days
1: of a lunar cycle and it get you close back to the loss but,
0: but when did this when did the Jews do this when they figure it out? Yes. Um,
1: certainly in the centuries before the Common Era. The Jewish cal in other words, sometime between the Babylonian exile, say five hundred BC, and maybe two hundred BCE, the Jewish calendar got fixed in this rhythm. Maybe earlier for all I know, but
0: and do we have any idea why they fixed it? What was going? What what couldn't they keep track of without fixing it? They realized um, the discrepancy. Okay, that no,
1: that's very important. Say it again. What couldn't they keep keep track of by not fixing it? The it's because Passover was the spring festival of harvesting the barley. Okay. I got it now. And. Sukkot was the fall festival of harvesting all the summer fruits. And they wanted
0: to keep that connection.
1: Yes, and that connection, it goes back to pre-Israelite times. In other words, we know we, we, scholars have compared the Jewish festivals as they are described in the Bible to other festivals that they've learned about from other archaeological sources. Um, these are pre-Israelite festivals of the region. Right, where the festival of Matzot, the festival of Matzah in the spring, where you clean out all your old grain and make unleavened bread. And then you wait seven weeks for Pentecost when the new wheat is harvested, and you bake the new bread for the new year. Uh, that is a tradition that predates Judaism. Right? Because there, it was an, it's, it's part of the indigenous practices of that region. What the Jews did, and this is a good segue, is that what they did is they took these festivals and they attached symbolisms to them about our sacred story. Mm. That's really what happens. These agricultural mm. festivals predate mm-hmm. Judaism in any way that we know it. Um, but what makes Judaism Judaism is that they take these festivals that are agricultural
3: and attach our story to them. Which is what Christians do. You take the resurrection of Jesus and attach it to springtime because it maps onto the right, story. Right, right. Karen, nice and loud. Hello. Uh, so I was, the Jewish calendar is fascinating that we attach
6: the stories of the 12 tribes to the 12 months, except that there are also actually 13 tribes the tribe of Levi gets kind of, doesn't get a land holding, so the tribe of Joseph gets split in half, so we actually have 13 tribes sometimes. Right. As well as 12. Mm-hmm. My question is, in a Christian year, are the 12 months connected to
3: the apostles? No. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great question. That's a great question, yeah, yeah. The, the, the apostles are celebrated based on the dates of their death or their martyrdom, so they fall scattered throughout the year. Um, they're they not given. Association. Uh, but not. you might have two or three, you might have two of them in one month. You know, they're not given separate months. This is why I don't treat the 12
1: sons of Jacob as historical figures, mm-hmm. nor do I treat the 12 tribes of Israel as 12 tribes. 12 is an important number going back thousands of years, it's about the zodiac. It's about the heavens. It's a number of 360 degrees. It's about the cycle of 12 that we discern in the months of the year. So a sacred story, a myth, will will take the symbolisms of the cosmos and lay them on our story. It becomes a sacred story. So the fact that there are 12 or 13 and it varies, children of Israel, is directly connected to the calendar. Nothing was more important than the calendar, nothing was more important than watching the skies and watching the seasons. And so, no, there's not 12 sons of Jacob per se, there's 12 archetypal sons of Jacob. And I think that's, wouldn't you say, Karen? Uh, That's that's my take on it. That's why this is mythic history, Mm -hmm. not literal history. It's very important. Yes. And and
4: remind me again which of these holiday uh, days are in the Torah mentioned in the Torah? Great
1: question. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a great question. Which Which of these days are are mentioned mentioned
4: in the Torah? Torah.
1: Okay. So in Jewish tradition, there are two categories of holy days. There are those that are, that are in the Torah and those that are post-biblical because the Jewish calendar is continually expanding and evolving in terms of observances because it's a, a living
3: culture. The right? Christian calendar does the same. There's the cycle we looked at a couple weeks ago that goes through the life of Jesus, and that's set. The second cycle is called the Sanctorial Cycle, and that's the feast days that have grown throughout the Christian uh, experience, and they tend to be related to different saints, you know, different saints and events. Um, so you got two cycles mapped <laughs> over. And the sanctorial cycle continues to grow as new saints are named, they get added in. Right. Very good. Very good. So,
1: in the Bible, when it says these are the set times of, of God, these are the holy times, the Mikrai Kodesh, we start with Passover, and um, Shavuot which is another of the pilgrimage festivals because it's named where it is in the calendar fixed. but we're not going to get there today Um, the, the date is fluid because in the Bible Shavuot is 50 days after the first sheaves of barley are harvested but the rabbis later fix that as connected to Passover but that's let that go for now. Let's, you know. Um, so there are three pilgrimage festivals that the Torah ins- are called pilgrimage festivals: Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And they're
6: all week long.
1: No, Shavuot is only a day. And they're all pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. The only week-long festivals in the Torah. Are the spring festival and the fall festival? Hanukkah is post-biblical, right? So the first cat. So there are Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot are called the pilgrimage festivals, and they are the markers. they are that they are the they are the, uh, the the mother the mothers of the Jewish year, right? The matrices, That's it. Um,
3: well, I'm just, the three, the three major ones in Christianity are Christmas, Easter, and, and Pentecost. Pentecost is Shavuot, right. Passover is Easter, and Christmas, I don't know if it falls. Christmas
1: is not, Yeah. Um, Christianity does not have a harvest holiday. Hmm. It, didn't, it didn't live on. What month is this? Um, that's uh, September, October.
3: October. Well, we have the, the Havomus, um, Trudum, it's, it's uh, All Hallows Eve, All Hallows are All Saints and All Souls and it's sort of a, a fall window of celebrations. And that's at, that's at uh, but Halloween, it's not, right? Right, Halloween. But, but that's, that's, not not on the, that's not on the equinox.
1: Okay. Halloween falls, it, it, the, the Celtic tradition, the year is divided into eight. The, the, the spring and the fall, the thing about this now, this is actually, okay, we'll get back to this in a second. Um, you have the solstices, summer solstice and winter solstice, spring and fall equinox. Then you have in um uh the halfway between the fall equinox and the winter solstice is October 31st, right? hmm Halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox is Groundhog Day, which is some artifact of some artifact of another marking of time where you are following the sun. Think of Stonehenge, you're following the sun and six and a half weeks. Between fall and spring is halfway, right? Then May first is May Day, six and a half May Day. Think of the, mm-hmm. you know, it's a holiday because yeah. in the Celtic tradition, it's exactly halfway between the spring equinox and the summer solstice. And then, what have we got in the summer? Is there anything around August first? Not so much, um, but there was something mm-hmm. that I don't know what happened to it. It went on vacation along with all the psychiatrists, yeah. So we, still so, share, uh, we still share two of the pilgrimage festivals, more or less. Right, you share two of the pilgrimage festivals, but not the third, right. which makes it very different, interestingly, because um, what you have, and this is where the Jewish calendar and the Christian calendar are dramatically different. The Jewish calendar truly is balanced on this axis of spring and fall. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And that comes from its agricultural roots. Um, so the other ones named in the Torah in addition to Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot are Rosh Hashanah, but it's not called that. It's called the Day of Remembrance or the Day of, Trump, of Blowing the uh, Shofar. And Yom Kippur on the 10th of that month of the month of sukkot and there's one more that's mentioned in the torah i wrote it in by hand after simchat torah called shmini atzeret which is the eighth day sukkot is seven days and it's the eighth day those are the biblical holidays so you don't actually hear about holidays happening in the summer or the fall and winter um all of them, the, all the biblical holidays are concentrated around these times, spring into early summer, and the month of the fall harvest moon. So we think of Rosh Hashanah as the Jewish New Year. In fact, the Jewish New Year is, is both spring and fall. Um, but let me put it a different way. Let's consider that spring, the month of Nisan, is in fact the Jewish new year. Uh, That's why it's numbered one on this chart, Nisan. Uh, And we mark that new year with the feast and festival of Passover. Uh, the, The secret to the Jewish calendar is the number seven. Because it says in Torah over and over again, Seventh day is the day of cessation and rest. Seven is the number. The seventh of anything is the day of fulfillment, completion, rest. So in addition to the solar calendar, what's not marked on here is the seven-day cycle that marks the Jewish year, which is not connected to the lunar or solar cycles. Right? The seven-day cycle seems to be an invention of Judaism Babylonia didn't have it Uh, and so this idea that on the seventh day God rested we don't have any other we haven't found any other sources that claim this seven day cycle and then organize their cultural life around it so when you read the Torah as I've taught seven becomes the, the number for every complete cycle It's the reason the menorah has seven branches in in the sanctuary. But it's also why over and over we're told that the seventh year is the sabbatical year. When you let the land rest, when you release debts, when you uh, um, uh, let your slaves uh, who have been indentured to you go free. Uh, That's a sabbatical year. So there's a seven-year cycle in the Jewish tradition. But there's also a seven-month cycle. And that's because... Tishrei, which we think of as the Jewish New Year Mm -hmm. is the seventh month of the year and so it is a full month of festival and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur took me years to understand this Rosh Hashanah announces the month the seventh month Yom Kippur on the tenth of the month purifies us and purges us for the festival that happens on the full moon and extends for seven days. And so, functionally, it's a month off on the Jewish calendar. Those of us who uh, grew up going to Jewish parochial schools, we had so many days off. (laughs) Oh boy, September was great. And in Israel... They don't even start school until after Sukkot. There's no point, point, right? Because, And it's also organically right for the Jewish calendar, because now we're really starting over. So not only is there a Sabbath on the seventh day, but in the Jewish cycle of time, there's a Sabbath on the seventh month. And Sukkot is understood to be the festival of rejoicing. That's its name in the Torah. Passover is the time of our liberation and the festival of spring and the festival of matzot and when we left so Passover is awesome and Sukkot uh, uh, is elevated way way up there in fact when you study the Torah on the first of Nisan you're also supposed which is the month of Passover it also says you shall announce the month on the tenth of Nisan you're supposed to take the lamb and sequester it So that on the full moon of Nisan, you slaughter it with your family and have the feast of Passover. So the first and seventh month mirror each other in the biblical treatment. Now, one of the things that I've talked about for years is that if you don't live in Jewish time, just like this is the same for Christians, then Christmas comes along and it's Christmas. And Easter's coming, it's Easter. It's like, that's good. Mm-hmm. You know, Passover, nice holiday. Great holiday. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, great. Now let's get back to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, you're, you're, because we don't live in a society that uh, honors the spiritual rhythms of Jewish time, we, it, it takes a huge act of will mm-hmm. and a lot of arranging to try to live in that time. Uh, so we don't know. We just don't know. Part of the joy of living in Israel is that the secular calendar, there are enough religious Jews in Israel that the secular calendar follows Jewish holidays. So that it's much easier to live as a Jew in Israel than it is anywhere else. Right? That's just, it's, it's part of the joy. You know, this is separate from every political discussion. Any, any Jew who, cares, who loves being Jewish gets to experience something in Israel that they can't experience anywhere else. And I, I have to tell you, it's, like, it's one of the greatest pleasures of my, my life to be in Israel at holiday time because I don't have to fight against the current of secular activity, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, yes, Pauline.
4: I just want to let people know that a really great book that looks at this at many, many levels is Arthur Waskow's Seasons of Our Joy. Oh, so I have a book that's my Bible
1: on Jewish holidays. Uh, I've read it at least at least every, 10 every times. Uh, it's called Seasons, Seasons of Our Joy by Rabbi Arthur Waskow. Because he lays out the histori- historical, the seasonal, the uh, spiritual meaning of each holiday.
4: Recipes too. Recipes
1: <laughs> too, yeah. I skipped that yeah. part. okay so in the little time we have left I want to point out I I have one more I think point to make that will help uh, tie things up a little bit so as Matthew described when you live in Christian time you are reliving the life of Jesus right Mm -hmm. his birth the events in his life his uh, and then of course the passion week the culmination of his life and then the 50 days until pentecost when the holy spirit comes and he and 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 his his energy is now embodied by of, by christians so, so it's a whole beautiful mythical walk you know where you embody this life well what the torah does with the jewish festivals is that you walk through the Bible, the story of the Jewish people. That's how it's organized. And so on Passover, at the time of spring, we tell the story of how we were slaves and we became free. And it's not then. It's now. In the same way that Matthew is describing the experience uh, that Christians might have of uh, of being in mythic time. Then you walk for seven weeks to Shavuot. And during that walking time, something is called counting the Omer. You count off 49 days. Seven times seven. Until you get to the 50th day, which in the Jewish tradition is just like the eighth day in the Jewish tradition is the day of the beginning of a new cycle. The 50th day is how much the more so. And on that day, which is also the festival of first fruits, when it says in the Torah, now bring the first fruits of your harvest to the temple and give thanks to God is also the day that we mark receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. And then if you look at my handwritten um, uh, notes on on this one do you see where it says Moses on Mount Sinai? Mm -hmm. 40 days right after Shavuot. Can you see that? So the rabbis take the story even further, and say, well, on Shavuot, after they received the Ten Commandments, it says, and Moses went up to the mountain and was there for 40 days and 40 nights. A period which concludes on the 17th of Tammuz, which is a fast day because, well, the 17th of Tammuz marks a day when Jerusalem's walls were breached and destroyed. But it also marks the day when the golden calf, when Moses shatters the tablets, so Jewish history becomes layered. Every tragedy is not just a f- historical tragedy, but it's a moment when we lose our connection with God and become exiled again. Like when, we're there, when Moses smashes the tablets, we are once again separate from God. We're, we're exiled from the divine presence. And there's a period called the three weeks of mourning, Because on the 9th of Av is the date historically when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70. Remember this cataclysm that we've talked about all through this class. Uh, And it's a terrible, terrible, it becomes a fast day. It's not a biblical fast day. It becomes a fast day because the Jews remembering this cataclysm make it a fast day. I'm doing this very, you know, very sketchily, but after Tishabov also falls during the heat of summer, in 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 a dry season, it's and there is and the year starts to turn then, in August, and there are seven weeks of consolation. That lead us towards the new year when we return, and in the mythical calendar. On the 1st of Elul, Moses goes back up the mountain to receive the second set of tablets. because 40 days later is going to be the 10th of Tishrei, Yom Kippur, when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing, and the connection has been restored. God has forgiven us. God says in last week's portion, Salakhti, I have forgiven you as you have acted. And so Yom and Kippur which, which is
4: they come together by gather. Mm-hmm. They gather
1: they gather together, together and gain forgiveness and those 40 days just like Lent there are 40 days between the new moon of Elul and the 10th of Tishrei are known as the 40 days of repentance when Jews who follow this time uh, uh, time map focus on assessing their deeds making amends reconciling Um, In Hebrew, it's called teshuva, returning. And there's that word again. For Jews, the word is always either we're separated and exiled from God or we're returning to God. And teshuva, which means repentance in English, literally means returning or responding. And so on Sukkot, we mark the time, the Torah tells us to mark the time and live live in a leafy, Um, shelters to remember the temporary shelters you lived in when you wandered in the wilderness. So there are two clear and different meanings to Sukkot. One is it's a harvest booth. In fact, when you go to Israel today, and you go to a farming area, in this time of year, you will see um, um, uh, shelters, temporary shelters out in the fields, because everybody's like harvesting and then sleeping out, you know, the The laborers are doing that. There's not everybody in Israel anymore, believe me. Um, But it's also there to remember when we were liberated from Egypt and now we are wandering under the protection of the divine in our tents through the wilderness. And so we have just walked through the Jewish story. We live it every year, from liberation to revelation to connection and that's why it's a time of joy even though we're journeying we're journeying with god god is with us and then in the traditional calendar there's a long break but everyone loves holidays so over the centuries i'm serious more and more holidays got filled so this is in the
3: summer where the long break is winter, yeah, winter. When, okay we're okay
1: yeah hanukkah falls oh here's summer yeah summer's over here this is the fall right here that's right. So the other way we walk through Jewish time is in the weekly cycle. The Torah, there are 50, there, depending on the year, there are between 50 and 54 weeks in the year because sometimes it's a week. Yeah. The Jewish calendar divides the Torah into weekly portions so that in the course of a year, we will start in the beginning, read a few chapters every week, and by the time we get around again we're at the end of the five books of moses we have a holiday called simchat torah where we celebrate the torah and then we start again so as jews living in jewish time we are reliving the jewish story on a week mythical story on a weekly basis throughout the year and on a seasonal basis we actually hear the story of the exodus twice once when it uh, once when it comes around on the Shabbat cycle, which is usually in January, and another time when it comes on the festival cycle. Um, so um, the the um, the point I wanted to make is that similar to Christian time, in Jewish time, rather than reliving the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his entry into our beings as the sort of the the Christ we are reliving the Jewish story from bondage to freedom to revelation and connection with the divine word to journeying through the wilderness in temporary shelters uh, meaning that we are under God's protection Um, and we do it every year while we're celebrating the seasons, yes, Helen.
6: You now I see why we can't get married on certain, some of these days. Mm. You know, all these—I never really understood. Right. There's rules about getting married. That's right. So if you come to my
1: class next week, <laughs> we're going to start examining the spring holiday cycle, starting with Purim, in very, in in very close detail looking for, both, looking for the, sp- the spiritual underpinnings of each of these holidays and also the way they fit together in the narrative. Obviously, I could only give you the, the, most, the most schematic look at it today. So that'll be next week. Matthew and I are going to communicate about how and what will mount next for all of us. You'll hear from us in, I don't know.
3: Whenever we tell you. Whenever we <laughs>
1: tell you. May I, before you get, before you get up and before, you, before we close, let me make a couple of announcements, um, unless you absolutely have to leave. Um, I have flyers here. April 17th, Sunday at 1 p.m., I'm the MC of a concert in New Paltz, which is a benefit concert for the Maya Gold Foundation. Maya was the girl who sadly committed suicide this past fall in our community. Her parents, Matthew and Elise, are all am- amazing folks. Mm-hmm. And they have decided to channel their energy into creating a foundation that will be dedicated towards figuring out how to support teens in our community in ways that will make our safety net stronger. Um, so Tom Chapin is coming. Kim and Reggie Harris, yeah. me, John Modesky, Joanna Teeters, the Benever Youth Caravan, um, the uh, Rock Academy Show Band. And it's a concert that's gonna be a, a, in the spirit of Pete Seeger. It's, it's not oh. a, it's, it's uh, it, and uh, it's at SUNY New pulse at the Studley Theater. So I'd love for you to take this flyer and to let people know about this. And um, that's over here. So. In addition, um, I don't think I'm going to make other announcements right now, it's time, time to quit, but uh, so now we get to have some words of temporary
3: closure here. What would you like to say? Thanks. <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah, no, I've loved this. It's been a really great four weeks. It was a great eight weeks before, and I hope we do keep it going and we find new focus areas and keep unfolding what we're unfolding. It's been really sort of exciting and enlightening for me and I think for all or most of us so yeah definitely there will be a next installment good
1: great
2: wonderful thank you and
3: i'm
1: so yeah i am so grateful let's just say to be continued yeah all right good. all right thank you,
0: thank you. Thank you.